Brought to you by BedroomBattlefields.com, this is the Tabletop Miniature Hobby Podcast. Have you ever come across the Old Hammer Fiction Podcast before? Uh, if not, it does exactly what it says on the tin. It's readings of Old Hammer era fiction. Uh, we've heard stories from Deathwing on there. There's stuff from Army Books, White Dwarf, you know, Gotrick and Felix. All sorts of stuff brilliantly read by the presenter, Lewis. And I reached out to him recently, not just because I love his show, but because I've mentioned before, we've, we've done some written interviews on bedroombattlefields.com, latterly with Rick Priestley and Jervis Johnson. And I appreciate not everyone likes to read words. Uh, so I thought, why not uh, get these uh, interviews onto the podcast? Obviously, we didn't record any audio with Jervis or Rick themselves, but I said to Lewis at the Old Hammer Fiction Podcast, would you mind just uh, recording these for me? And then I could stick them on the podcast. So he very kindly agreed to do that. So I'm pleased to say on this episode, we've got interviews with Rick Priestley and Jervis Johnson. Not in person, but uh, brilliantly read by Lewis. So let's crack on then and dive in with those. Starting with Jervis Johnson and the first question, as always, why does he think this hobby still exists? I think the hobby still exists because it offers a combination of things that other hobbies don't, namely collecting, painting and playing with toy soldiers, or with exquisitely crafted miniature figures if you prefer. Digging deeper into that, hobbies like ours allow people to exercise their creativity. No one else will have an army collection quite like yours. It is unique and only exists because you created it. Not everybody needs to exercise their creativity like this, but many do. And I think this is why the hobby is unlikely to die out in the face of things like video games and such like. Although you can say that a tabletop war game and video games are both games, they scratch very different itches. What's your favourite book of all time? I think it's impossible to pick one, so instead I've picked my top five. Dune. I first read Dune when I was 14. I recently reread it and it still stands up. The latest movie finally does it justice, and there are some great games based on it too. A particular favourite with my local board game group is Dune Imperium. The Lord of the Rings, though the Conan short stories by Robert E. Howard, come a very close second. I read all of these at more or less the same time as I read Dune, and I still think they are great to this day. I'm also a big fan of the Conan comic book series, especially the early run with the artwork by Barry Windsor Smith. The adaptation of Red Nails by Roy Thomas and Barry Windsor Smith is one of my favourite comic books of all time. Peter the Great, His Life and World I read a lot of non-fiction history books and always have, but this book by Robert K. Massey is my favourite. I picked it up because it has such great reviews, knowing nothing about the subject, and it was a revelation. Never was truth is stranger than fiction more apt. A fascinating man, an eventful life, and an extraordinary world. Dreaming of Babylon. This is a strange little book by an American author called Richard Broutigan. He mainly wrote rather surreal short stories, but this is a proper novel. 
It's set in 1942 and is about an inept private eye whose investigations are hindered by the fact that he keeps daydreaming about an alternative life where he lives in ancient Babylon. If that sounds weird, well, it is. But there was something about the main character that spoke to me because I tend to spend a lot of time living in my head, too. Grendel, another strange little book, this time by an author called John Gardner. It retells the story of Beowulf, but from the perspective of the monster that Beowulf ultimately kills. It's just beautifully written and deals with all kinds of interesting themes, but I especially like the way it deals with the issue to do with good and evil. In Grendel, the monster is not really an evil being, more a hopelessly alienated one. Who or what is your biggest inspiration in what you do? My biggest inspiration would have to be Charles Grant, Sr. It was his book, Battle, Practical Wargaming, that first introduced me to tabletop wargames, and the battle reports he wrote for Military Modelling magazine were the inspiration for the battle reports that Andy Chambers and I created for White Dwarf. I think he is probably the best pure writer about the tabletop wargame hobby there has ever been. I found, and still find, his writing to be witty, erudite, wise and helpful. When I first started writing J-Files articles for White Dwarf, I tried to channel my inner Charles Grant, and I hope that I achieve that goal to some small extent. But for me, he is still the master. What's your best value budget hobby purchase of less than £20? I think I would go for a daylight bulb and hands-free magnifying glass. When I was working full-time, painting during the daytime wasn't usually an option. I was a rules writer, not a member of the heavy metal team. So I, like most hobbyists, painted my miniatures in the evening after work. As I got older, my eyesight slowly got worse, until I found it really difficult to paint miniatures. Someone recommended I get a good daylight bulb and a hands-free magnifying glass, which made things so much easier. If you could live in any historical period, where, when and why? Well... It's sort of a historical period, so I'm going to go for the village where Asterix the Gaul lives. I love the Asterix books, and I've always said that if I could live anywhere, it would be in that village with the rest of the indomitable Gauls, where my only fear would be the sky falling on my head. Do you think there are any underutilised settings or periods in tabletop gaming? On the whole, no. I think that more attention could be paid to counterfactual history, e.g. British military involvement in the American Civil War, and I'd like to see more campaign-level tabletop war games, e.g. where you refight the whole of the Waterloo campaign as a tabletop game, not just individual battles. But I can't say I'll lose any sleep if this doesn't happen. What might people be surprised to hear that you're not very good at? I'm not sure how surprised they'd be to hear it especially if they read my battle reports against Andy Chambers in White Dwarf magazine. But I'm not a very good player of the games that I have designed. I know I'm not the only game designer who is like this. I think it's because I tried to play the game the way I wanted it to work, which isn't always the best way to use the game system to actually win the game. What have you recently changed your mind about? I used to be obsessed with watching the news. However, what with Covid and the war in the Ukraine... 
I found that the relentlessness of the bad news cycle was starting to really get me down. Then, about 18 months ago, I came across a book called Stop Reading the News by Rolf Debelli, which pretty much explains why you should do exactly that. So, for the last year and a half, I haven't watched the news, read a newspaper, looked at a news feed or even read a newspaper headline, and I feel much better for it. When was the last time something in the hobby surprised you? I've been around for a while now, so not much surprises me. The most recent thing that really stands out is the success of board game cafes. There's three in Nottingham, not counting Warhammer World, and when the first one opened I thought it was doomed to failure. I wasn't at all convinced that people would be willing to pay money to be able to sit at a games table. My wife was quite at the opposite point of view and made the really good point that games cafes would be great places for people that want to go out and socialise but didn't want to go to a pub or club. Fortunately, she was proved right and I was proved wrong, and the Nottingham Games Cafes are thriving. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. Gosh, there are so many. As a rules writer, one of the things that you quickly learn is that things that seem self-evident to you are not nearly so obvious to other people. But to pick one, I'll go with something almost none of my geek friends agree with me on, which is that it's good to periodically clear out stuff from your collections. I've never been much of a pack rat, and over the last decade or two, I've ended up moving several times. Each time I moved, I ended up culling my collection of hobby stuff, games, miniatures, comics and books, down a bit. To start off with, it wasn't a choice, but a necessity. But each time I had to do it, I found it liberating, a literal weight being lifted. It also made me go through each item in my collection to decide which made the cut and which didn't, which is an interesting and illuminating process in and of itself. After my last move, I have my own small study with shelves and glass cabinets, and I follow a rule that if I can't put something where I can see it, then it has to go. So no lead under the bed or in the attic for me. I will often tell my geeky friends that they should do it too. Without exception, they look at me as if I'm crazy. Are there any common hobby myths and misconceptions that make you roll your eyes? Probably the biggest is the idea that errors in a rule book or lack of balance in an army list is because the rules writer is lazy or incompetent or because of a lack of playtesting. This is usually followed by a comment like, After all, if we could spot these things within a few days of the rules coming out, how could they have possibly missed it? It shows such a complete lack of understanding about how difficult these things are to get right and also of the actual process by which rules and army lists are written. Anyway, for the record, I have never met or worked with a rules writer I'd consider lazy or incompetent. Furthermore, comrades, rules writing is a process of constant iteration and rewriting that carries on until you hit a deadline. In my experience, almost without exception. Actually, no, without exception, Errors and balance issues are caused by things that were changed in the last set of rewrites before the deadline was hit, and they were made to fix issues that playtesting had revealed. Having written rules for 40-odd years and never managed to get a set published without at least an error or two in it, you learn to be sanguine about it and be ready to get the errata and clarifications out there as fast as possible. Are there any particularly satisfying mechanics you've either created yourself or came across whilst playing someone else's game. 
One mechanic I came across recently and really liked is used in a series of games called Table Battles, published by a small company called Hollenspieler. The game recreates various famous battles from history and uses cards to represent the major formations of each army. In your turn, you roll six dice and then allocate them out to cards in your army. Each card needs certain combinations of dice to be able to carry out an action. So one card might need a pair of fives to attack, while another might need you to place a four, a five and a six on the card, and so on. Any dice that are placed on a card can't be rolled again until they are used, so the dice are a limited resource, and you need to think hard about where to place them. At the start of your turn, before you roll the dice, you can carry out an action you have set up with your earlier dice rolls. What I especially like about this mechanic is that sometimes, when you attack, you will force your opponent to make a reaction, and this will stop them from carrying out their action in the next turn. They are reacting to your attack rather than unleashing their own. These simple mechanics do a lot to represent command and control issues, and they also capture the idea of one side gaining the momentum in a battle, which is something I have read about in lots of historical accounts, but very rarely seen recreated in a game. Do you have any advice for those who want to follow your path? The advice I always give is to consider carefully that doing so could well lead to you losing your hobby by turning it into your job. If you spend all day designing games, then, if you are anything like me, you will find that the last thing you want to do when you get out of the office is play the game you've been working on from nine to five. Luckily for me, I love all sorts of different games, so I was able to sidestep this problem by playing historical games, non-GW board games and classic games like Bridge and Backgammon outside of work. But if your hobby is purely, say, 40k, then you need to consider seriously that getting a job with a 40k rules team might kill your love of the hobby stone dead. And finally, what are you working on right now, and is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener? I've been working away with miniature designers Alan and Michael Perry on a set of historical wargame rules called Valor and Fortitude. They are available for free. You can download them from the Wargames Illustrated and Perry Miniatures websites. They started life as a sort of thought experiment to see if we could come up with a set of rules designed to fit onto just four sides of A4, or more specifically, an A3 piece of paper folded in half. A similar design process was followed with the army sheets and scenarios needed to play the game. The army sheets are designed to fit onto a single piece of paper, and contain all the information and special rules a player needs to use an army in a game of V&F. The scenarios also fit onto a single side of A4, and provide all the information and special rules needed to fight a battle. So if you have the rule sheets, your army sheet, and the scenario, you are good to go. The result is a tight little set of rules that, being only four pages long, are easy to teach and to use. You can download the rules from perryminiatures.com or wargamesillustrated.net and there is a VNF Gamers group page on Facebook too. If you're in the market for a t-shirt, mug, sticker or magnet with Goblin Green bases written on it, then today is your lucky day. We've teamed up with TeePublic to create a merch store for the podcast, which you could visit by going to bedroombattlefields.com forward slash store. 
So go and get yourself some Goblin Green Bases branded merch today and bonus points if you send in a photo of you being escorted out of your local games workshop. That's bedroombattlefields.com slash store. And now, back to the show. Big thanks to Jervis slash Lewis there. And now let's crack on with part two with Rick Priestley. Again, starting with that question, why does he think this hobby still exists? Wargaming, broadly, I can't see any reason why it shouldn't continue to exist. Whether we are talking about tabletop, historical, board war games or video games, historical tabletop war games, my main interest, does seem to be an older crowd, but there's plenty of younger players coming over from fantasy and science fiction games. Games Workshop has done a great job of bringing wargaming to the attention of youngsters, effectively recruiting new players and stimulating an interest in the model-driven tabletop wargame. The hobby as a whole has benefited from that, and I imagine will continue to do so for years to come. What might people be surprised to hear that you're not very good at? I'm not sure there are any surprises there. I'm pretty bad at exactly the sort of things you'd expect me to be bad at. Years ago, when folk used to ask me how to get into working in war games, I used to have a stock answer. Be bad at something else. At that time, all the people I knew who worked in war games had basically failed to do whatever it was they set out to do beforehand. My boss chucked in a degree in maths to start a war games company. Jervis Johnson gave up a career as an undertaker. It takes all sorts. And quite a few of us had worked in archaeology, including me. I wasn't a very good archaeologist because I hated being outside in the pouring rain, shoveling spoil in the rain all day, sleeping in a wet tent, and resorting to the countryside by way of toilet facilities. All of these things had limited appeal. After that, I tried my hand as a figure designer, but I couldn't make enough to earn a decent living, and so I got dragged into the world of casual work at Citadel doing mail order, and then a full-time job, and so on. Hence my advice to anyone starting out in the world of war games. Be bad at something else, because if you're good at something else, you'd be better off sticking to it. When was the last time something in the hobby surprised you? I think the development of thermoplastic resin injection into silicon rubber moulds was a bolt out of the blue. I never expected that technology to work. Oddly enough, many years ago, Games Workshop did have a go at developing rubber in steel inserts to fit into plastic injection moulding machines. That experiment never worked out. Basically, the pressure behind an injection moulding press is so great it distorts the rubber, no matter how stiff a rubber you use. This was in the days of black, organic rubber, so you had what you had, unlike today. The company that pioneered that new technology has built its own injection machines, of course, and to be honest, it has not been plain sailing either. Teething problems aside, it's now used commercially by several war games manufacturers, and the quality of materials gets better all the time. That's been a real game-changer. Tell me something that's true that almost nobody agrees with you on. There is nothing so unbearably tedious as sport, especially football. Why people take an interest in that kind of thing, let alone raise individuals to the level of celebrity on the basis of kicking a ball, skipping, jumping about, etc., is all a mystery to me. 
Tell me something you once believed about the hobby that turned out not to be true. Nothing springs to mind, to be honest. When we did the third version of Warhammer, I thought we could extend the range to include not only army lists for competitive gaming, but also narrative-based scenarios and campaigns, this being the sort of gaming I'd always enjoyed. I thought there'd be a market for campaign packs, and we produced a number, including The Grudge of Drong, Terror of the Lichmaster, and so on. The idea was to expand the range of gaming, or rather to cater for a style of gaming that had hitherto been quite successful in earlier versions of Warhammer, e.g. Orcs Drift. The trouble was we'd been so successful with the new format of army books complete with army lists that the game had turned towards that style of one-on-one competitive play. The new campaign packs did sell reasonably well, but sale expectations had moved forward, so they were not judged a success at the time, and were dropped fairly shortly. So I guess the market wasn't what I had hoped it was, and what people really wanted was army lists and competition-style games. Are there any common hobby myths and misconceptions that make you roll your eyes? Are there such things? I suppose there are a few odd things folks say about games I've written that continue to do the rounds even though they really aren't true. One is that Warhammer was originally a free set of rules given away with mail order. That isn't true, but it was an idea that was floated at the time, and we used to include stats and rules for Warhammer on mail order sheets, so you can see how the story got around. The other one is that some folks cite Laserburn as an early form of Warhammer 40,000 or influence upon it. It certainly wasn't, but Brian Ansell, who was running Games Workshop at the time, wrote Laserburn and he would go on to initiate several projects for 40k supplements, so I suppose there may have been some ideas or concepts common to both. Oh, and Bolt Action is derived from 40k. It really, really isn't. Oddly enough, Warhammer 40k, 3rd edition, and all subsequent editions that use the same basic mechanic, was derived from a home-brewed World War II rules that John Stallard and I used to play 15mm World War II games with. Are there any particularly satisfying mechanics you've either created yourself or came across whilst playing someone else's game? I thought the turnover mechanic in Blood Bowl was an interesting way to sequence a game and I took the idea and adapted it to my Warmaster system. So, to activate a unit, you roll dice to give an order. If successful, you continue to move and order units, but if you failed, it's turn over. It's interesting because you have to decide which things to move first and which to leave until last, and risk not being able to move at all. I later adapted the same mechanic to Black Powder and Hail Caesar for Warlord Games, so it's had a good run. Another mechanic that I've always thought would be interesting to adapt is the combat mechanism in a game called Warlord. Warlord is a game of nuclear warfare, published in the 70s and later reboxed and marketed by Games Workshop as Apocalypse. Anyway, it works like this. When making an attack, you take a dice and secretly select a number by hiding it behind your palm. You can only choose a number up to the total number of pieces you are attacking with. Your opponent guesses what number you have chosen and, if correct, you lose that many pieces. If incorrect, your opponent loses one of their own pieces. 
the attacker can stop at any point if things are not going well. Assuming things do go well, once an attacker removes the opponent's last piece, you get to move into the space and take it over. But the number of pieces you move in has to be the number you last selected. Thus, the initial attacks can be random, although choosing a high value risks losing a high number of pieces, which encourages you to choose a low value. But your opponent knows this, and you know that they know, and so on. When it comes to your last attack, the fact that you've taken the space with the number of pieces nominated means you want to choose as high a value as possible. But your opponent knows this, and you know that they know, and so on. I just like the element of double-guessing and the potential for a lucky guess to unravel an attack. And finally, what are you working on right now, and is there anything else you'd like to share with the listener? I've hung up my spurs and can't see me undertaking any big new projects anytime soon. Retired and enjoying gaming for its own sake. So there you go then, Rick Priestley and Jervis Johnson on the same podcast episode with a, a slight asterisk beside it. But uh, again, massive thanks to Lewis for doing those readings. Be sure to check out the Old Hammer Fiction podcast. You'll find it on anywhere you get your podcasts, including the app that you're using now. So get the phone out, type it in, Old Hammer Fiction podcast and get subscribed to that. You'll never need an audible subscription again, I promise you that. And off the back of that, I thought I'd uh, try something. I thought I'd try maybe some listener participation or maybe just uh, seeing if there are any actual listeners out there. But um, what I've got, I've set up a, a sort of voicemail software. So what to do, if you can, is go to bedroombattlefields.com forward slash voicemail, all one word, voicemail, and you'll find a little button there. And basically, you can uh, leave a voicemail for the show. So I've used one of these ongoing questions from the interviews that I've been doing with the XGW folks. And it's, uh, what hobby-related thing have you recently changed your mind about? I like the answers to questions like these, and I'm really interested to find out the answers to, you know, what you think of this, what the listeners think of this too. So like I say, if you go to bedroombattlefields.com forward slash voicemail, you'll find the simple way to, to leave your audio feedback on that question. And who knows, if we get enough of them, we could put them together and, and play them on a future episode. Like I say, the question currently is, what hobby-related thing have you recently changed your mind about? Aside for that, I have managed to get a wee bit painting done recently. I've been working on my 15mm armies, uh, got some of them based, got them primed and have actually started on them. So this regiment of orcs with like cleavers and shields, I've been working on them and a unit of foot knights as well. So that's been a pretty interesting transition, you know, going from 28 to 15 for this project. But I'm enjoying it. I think the, the miniatures are still big enough that you can, um, you know, you're, it's still the kind of same painting experience, I would say, or, or similar. Uh, I haven't experimented with painting six mil, you know. I just found that a bit too challenging. wasn't really for me, but I am enjoying putting these armies together for 15 mil. So I'm really looking forward to cracking on with that. And one thing I'd been needing to sort out for these armies was movement trays. And a company who are really local to me are war bases. They're based not too far from here at all. And uh, they obviously do, like war bases, they do movement trays, they do terrain, you know, laser cut MDF stuff. And they're really great for, they'll, they'll do custom orders for you in that as well. So very accommodating, very friendly company. 
and I wanted to get close order trays, so I, I kind of learned something here. A close order tray is when you've got a, a movement tray, it's got like a lipped border around it, but the regiment, all the, you know, the individual miniatures are on these 15 millimeter square bases, and I want to rank them up together uh, on this unit and just have this lip around the edge to, to prevent them sort of spilling off, if that makes sense. Because they also do the trays that, um, I don't know the term for these ones, but there's like lips, individual lips around every single base and I thought well if I use one of those I'm going to have to paint the, the lip you know throughout and I'm maybe going to have to put some basing material on it and that and I thought that'll you know that'll um, increase my workload. I could see why you would use them if you were working with bulky miniatures that maybe encroached on their uh, their neighbour's area but um, aye, the close order trays were, were better for me but the sizes of these different units were all quite unique and they didn't have them generically in stock if you like so I just reached out and I said these are the different sizes these are the footprints of my units and they said yeah we could do that for you um, and they, they just created them so custom order very very good price and uh, can't say enough good things about them war bases that is i'll put a link to them in the show notes but the, the website is warbases.co.uk so thanks very much war bases if you happen to be listening all right then i think that's it for this episode of the tabletop miniature hobby podcast thanks as ever for listening and i look forward to getting together again on the next one Music